For the story behind the action, catch Tabiso Musia weekdays at 7 p.m. But let's talk cricket now. Uh, England finally going home, but Australia are already here. The first T20 starts on Friday, but we want to look back at England's visit. And we are joined on the line by SABC cricket analyst and commentator and, of course, uh, former player himself, Hussein Manak, who joins us on the line. Hussein, good evening. Thanks again for finding time to speak to us uh, on SAFM. Good evening, Tabiso. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Hussein. Before we look at the tour, let's start with the big story of the day. Faf Duplessis stepping down as T20 and uh, as T20 captain as well as Test captain. Is it something that you expected? Did you see it coming? Yeah, I think you kind of had a sense that it was in the air. Um, you know, I, I think Faf for me has always been uh, one of, one of the better South African captains. I, I rated him quite highly. Uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into being a, a good captain. And I think uh, some of the qualities, particularly when it comes to things like having really good people skills, uh, he, he's, he's a wonderful person, as good. He's always been a good listener. And I think he had, for large parts of his captaincy, he had a lot of his team right behind him, you know, uh, when he captains. And so, you know, I think in, in a way it was probably you had a sense that the way things have played out over the last uh, probably year or two, uh, South Africa haven't uh, done well in the in the World Cup in England last year. And then um, with things playing out off the field with Cricket South Africa and all the pressures that have been on him, uh, you almost had a sense that this was uh, this was uh, expected, you know. Uh, but I think it's in a, in a way uh, I'm pretty pleased that he's decided to continue playing, because you know whoever the new captain is going to be, and at the moment it looks like Quentin de Kocky is probably going to be that man in the T20s and in the ODIs and in the Tests. We don't know uh, what's going to happen, but uh, somebody like Faf, just being there and the type of personality he is. Uh, I think he'll add a valuable, be able to play a valuable part and, and make a huge contribution uh, to be, towards assisting the team and the new captain. So, so in that way, I'm, I'm pretty pleased that he's decided to to still play as well. How do we look back at his? How do you look back at his captaincy, uh, Hussein? Uh, I look at his captaincy. I must say, uh, you know, I've, as I said to you earlier, I've always rated him as, as a very good captain. I rated him at once as probably one of the best South African captains. And, and I'm not talking particularly about results, but just the way he went about doing uh, what he needed to do as a captain, which was bringing people together, motivating your team. And, and the way he did it, you know, it wasn't that bombastic, um, dictatorial style of captaincy. He's always been a good listener. He gets people on his side. He was very good with the media, with the press. You always had a sense that what you see is what you get with Faf, you know. Um, in my when I was a selector, I was on the, on the panel for a number of years, and I had uh, the opportunity to interact with him on a number of occasions where we would sit down before series and select teams and put things together. And very often we would disagree on, uh, on on selections and things like that. And throughout all that, you know, he always held his. Yet uh, you always had a sense of respect for him. He always listened to you, even if he disagreed with you. Um, I look at his captaincy as probably in two parts. I think. There was a stage when he was a very, very good captain, I think, on and off the field. He made good decisions. Uh, you always felt that he was on the up. Uh, Abi de Villiers was captain, then Hashim Amla in, in, in the other formats, and then Faf took over in all three formats. And I, I sensed he was improving. And then, you know, as it gets closer, just before the World Cup, for some reason or the other, um, 
somehow things started to not work out. So in other words, I'm not saying that he didn't make the correct decision because, you know, decisions, you can make the same decision and on one day it will work out and the other day it won't, you know. That's how captaincy and that's how cricket cricket goes because a lot of your decisions still depend very heavily on the players who have to go out there and produce the goods. Uh, but, you know, if you look at prior to the World Cup, there was a Sri Lankan series uh, where South Africa lost in South Africa on home soil. Then it was the World Cup, then now again uh, losing against England. So, the, the, you know, there was a number of things which started to almost show that perhaps all the off-field pressures and captaining in all three formats became, uh, became a bit heavy of a burden for him and it became tough for him. So, you know, uh, I think the early part, the first half of his captaincy, uh, I, you will probably look back and think, Perhaps maybe he could have also achieved a lot more as a captain. But I think overall, when you look at it as a whole, as a collective, I think he's been a, he's been a, a good captain. I, th- I think, I, you know, for me, I look back and I, I look at him as one of the better captains. Okay, let's now look at England's uh, tour of South Africa. Um, they won their Test Series, coming back from um, from one all down to win a 3-1. They also won the T20 Series and uh, they drew the ODIs. Was it a pass then or a fail for South Africa? What's your scorecard here, Hussein? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that England was a, was a better team uh, in all different areas and departments. Uh, England um, certainly had, it, had things together. You know, in a sense, you, had, you almost had a feeling that their plans were clear. They knew almost. You sense that they knew what they wanted to do, what they came here to do, what they set out to achieve. Uh, I think for me, England um, were by far the better team. Uh, and as, as much as even in this particular T20 series, you look at the South African team and the margins were very close. So South Africa competed in the T20s, but in the Test series, South Africa were outplayed in in the in the ODIs. It was a uh, 50-50, I think, in the end, uh, you know, because of that rained out one at um, at Kingsmead. But overall, you do get a sense that South Africa has still got a lot of work to do uh, on and off the field when it comes to putting a decent squad together. So, so challenges lie ahead. Um, but I think England was a fantastic series in that uh, South Africa can look at probably how England went about doing what they did in the last four years. And what do South Africa need to do to try and get to where England are at the moment? Um, so their plans were clear, their strategies were clear. Uh, you can see there was a lot of homework done behind the scenes, whereas on many occasions you sense that South Africa were clutching at straws with regards to uh, finding players in different positions, etc. Um, and, and even tactically, uh, you know, on the field. Of course, a young captain, Quinton de Kock, came in. Um, captain, but uh, but even then, you know, I mean, you, you just sense that in on the whole, England had things all together, and West South Africa was still finding their way. So, you know, how that plays out over the next year or two um, uh, remains to be seen, because now there's, of course, you know, South Africa have a director of cricket, uh, they have a new coach, they have, you know, a new management system and structure, and whether all that works out and, and it's an upward curve or not, uh, we'll have to see how that plays out, but certainly challenging times ahead. Well, before the tour, a lot happened behind the scenes, but with the appointment of Mark Boucher as coach and Jacques Callis as betting consultant, there was some positivity. Uh, how do you how do you think the coaching staff fared then? Because they were also under scrutiny. 
Yeah, you know, like I said, I look at some of the tactical decisions um, that took place. Um, some of the things, I, I go back to the test series, for example, there were some critical decisions where tactically you felt that South Africa just got it wrong. And whether those were decisions that were made by the captain himself or whether it was in discussion with the coach, I mean, I, I some of those decisions were, for example, whether to take the new ball or not at mm. certain time in the morning, uh, whether to continue with the old ball, um, there were some other decisions taken. And, and you sense that South Africa were not reading the game as well as England were. It was just the awareness around certain tactical moves and decisions. Uh, and, and they got some of those things wrong. So I'm not too sure. I mean, I wouldn't really... Um, I, I don't think I would give the coaching staff a pass. I, I don't think I would. I think they also have uh, a lot of growth um, to do. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be introspection for them. It's, it's probably a time where they need to look back and go like, okay, what do we need to do to improve ourselves as well? Um, because I think England, on and off the field, tactically, and, and uh, were more astute. They were more aware. Uh, in different areas and different departments. So I think from a coaching perspective, yeah, there's probably some introspection that needs to be done. Uh, I, would, I, would be, I would be disappointed if the coaching staff uh, were to think that, uh, no, they didn't, they were, they were great and it was just unlucky or maybe we still putting the team together. No, I think it was a combination of the team, um, the players. Yes, you probably fight, playing around with combinations of getting players into different positions. So selection-wise, I think South Africa's got a lot uh, a lot of combinations wrong in in the test matches. They they got the balance of the team wrong. In the ODIs you felt the balance wasn't right. So so they made some decisions around selection. It just didn't make a lot of sense cricketing wise. And England got those things right, mm. you know, based on conditions and then the tactical moves as well. So so yeah, I, I think there's there's certainly. Uh, a lot of introspection and, and, and one hopes that there's improvement in those areas because okay. if there's a sense We're going to continue no, just after this quick break. Tabiso Musiya on SAFM. Still talking to cricket analyst, uh, former selector and pro, of course, uh, Hussein Manak about uh, England's visit of South Africa. We're looking more at the Proteas and their scorecard. And uh, let's take some of your voice notes that came through on 061-4104-107. And we'll let uh, Hussein answer after this. Good evening, uh, Tabiso. Good evening to Hussein Manak. Wonderful uh, commentator there with you. Um, I've just got some couple of questions. I'll make it short. My first question to him is, where does he think Quentin de Kock must bat in the Test team? There's been many positions uh, for him, but for me, I think number four is good. But I, so, but I think for me, that's number four is good for him to bat in Test cricket. That's the first question. The second question, where is uh, Chris Morris in the T20 team? Where is Chris Morris? Can you please answer those two questions? Uh, where is Chris Morris? Because Chris, I feel like, and he must also answer this question, I feel like Chris Morris is highly rated in other countries, especially in India. And here at home, we don't highly rate him. I think he's one of the best T20 bowlers at home here in South Africa. Why is Chris Morris not given the respect he deserves? Where is Chris Morris? Is he still in the selector's minds? Does he think Chris Morris is still in the selector's minds? Thank you very much. Celebra here in East London. Even in the interview, Vincent here in Odindalasaras, look, what I've realized with this tour, I've seen so that, look, we have got good talent here in South Africa, but I don't think most of these guys are competitive competitive enough to can win as a, a silverware. But in 
overall, I, I think there is a prospect um, out of this guy, and I'm very happy with the, uh, the, the performance of Tamba Wavuma. I think him and Kwaku, they form a good uh, betting partnership, yeah, but with bowling, to be honest, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Evening, data from Holland. I think Cricket South Africa should look for a structure where they can bring young players who have international experience at a young age, maybe 2022, just like they did with Rabada and Makram. Because now we're bringing all players, and if they fail, we don't have anyone to look at, to look for. We just go for the same player, player like uh, Dwayne Pitorias. He hasn't done what they've been telling us that he can do. Can you please? maybe have a good structure, just like England has. They bring in young players and those young players, they can perform. Thanks to learn from Holland. Okay, guys, thanks for those uh, questions. I'll put them to Hussein. Hussein, in no particular order, um, the second last question was maybe the team was not competitive enough, but it was encouraged by Temba Bavuma and uh, Quentin de Kock. Uh, what, are there any positives? And if so, what positives do we take from this visit of England, firstly? Yeah, I think the the Temba Bavuma, um, the way he played in the T20s was certainly one of the positives. I think South Africa can take out of um, this, this the, the T20s. Uh, Quinton de Kock, the way he played was, was predominant. I thought Quinton de Kock, and you know, as a young captain coming, and he's he's almost injected a new sort of energy into the team. And yes, he's made a few mistakes, but as expected, you know, as a young captain, he is going to make. Uh, mistakes because he's a type of captain that thinks on his feet, and uh, and I think he will improve. And, I, and you know, if the cock improves as a captain and continues to improve and learn from his mistakes, I think he could become a very good captain because he's got he's got a feel for the game that I don't think many many other people do. He's uh, he's been behind the stumps all his life. Uh, if you watch the way he bats, he reads the game really well. So, so I think for me that's a big positive. If the cock can take over leadership, I, I'm going to go straight into the first question. Yep. Um, the, your first caller well, you must bet. asked about the cock. Where does he bet? Yeah, and I think that's a, it's been an interesting question over the last few years. I remember uh, in the England series in 2017 when um, the cock was pushed up to, and I remember at that stage, you know, we had a faff and myself had a discussion with him and asked him, listen, where do you want to bet? Do you want to bet up the order? And he he said four. And that was mm-hmm. his preferred position. And he batted four for, I think it was a couple of test matches. And that experiment didn't quite work out because then he was, he, he didn't score runs at four. And then he ended up back at seven, you know, <laughs> and then, so, so, you know, the thing is, if you keep wickets in, in a test match and if you're the wicket keeper, then it's very difficult to bat in the top four. So, because if you on the field for a day or day and a half and you, out in the sun, you come back and you've got to put your pads on straight away and go out to bat. It can be tough. So, um, And if you've got to do that over a period of four days or five days in a test match, uh, that isn't always easy. So if you keep wickets, it's not easy to bat in the top four. So probably then five is the best position for him if he's, wicket, if he's keeping wickets. If they can somehow twist his arm and somebody can convince him to give up the class and maybe let somebody else keep wickets, then perhaps maybe you know, even three or even as an opener. I mean, the cock opens in, in, in ODIs and T20s. Mm. Uh, he's open for the Lions all his life. So he's, and he's been an opening bat all his life. So he loves 
the new ball. We see how he plays the new ball in uh, the, uh, in in, ODI, in ODIs and T20s. I mean, he smashes the new ball, and if he plays like that in in, in test matches, so this is my personal opinion, and I, I, somehow a lot of people don't agree with me, but I I really believe that for me, if Quinton de Kock can give up the gloves, and somebody can convince him to give up the gloves in test matches, and he can open the batting, I think we'll get the best out of him, because he could be our David Warner. You know, he could play that type of role where he really from the start goes after bowlers and he can put bowlers under pressure. And I, I think, for example, in this test series, we played four test matches. I think if the cock had opened in all four test matches um, and didn't keep, mm. um, I think he would have scored three hundreds. That's just my personal view. And the way things turned out, where he batted at five and seven and six, five, six and seven, uh, by the time he gets set, he's already run out of partners. And before you know it, he's going to try and do something different and he ends up either stranded on the one end or something else. So for me, I think the cock must go. He's going to get um, as, ma- as many overs as he possibly can to bat um, because he's our best player. There's no two ways about it. So, so for me, that's my personal view. As I said, I don't think many people agree with me for whatever reason. <laughs> but I've seen, look, I mean, I've seen Quentin play from a youngster. I watched him yeah. play from the age of 14, 15. So I know him very well. I know how he plays. I really do understand his mindset. And I, I think for me, that would be the best goal. But if he's, if he doesn't want to give up the gloves and he insists on keeping, then I think probably five is the best position. So if he does give up the gloves, who's the incumbent? Uh, <laughs> look, I mean, uh, there are a few options. You've got, um, if you look at, for example, in the SAA side, there's uh, Rudy Second, who's been doing well for a number of years, also batting quite well. There's uh, Kashile from the Warriors, who's been also had a very good couple of seasons. There's Carl Varane from the Cobra. So those are the three that stand out at the moment. Um, and they've been kind of knocking on the door in the different formats, you know. Uh, so there are options. There are players who I think are good enough that can take the gloves in uh, in, in, the, in the test match for, for the protest. Yeah. And if that happens, then the cock can, of course, play very much like A.B. De Villiers did towards the second half of his career. Remember where A.B. used to keep initially? Yes, yes. And yes. then he gave up. And then A.B. Or A.B. kept for a while and then he gave up the gloves. And A.B. then was in the squad as a backup batter. So the cock could still be your backup batsman in the squad if somebody else keeps, but then he bats in in the top four somewhere. But that would give him opportunity to get hundreds as opposed to where he's batting now. I think he's not been given the opportunity to get hundreds. The other voice note from Tulane was asking about young players uh, saying that we need new structures. I mean, in the ODI squad, Calvarain, who you've just mentioned, was called up. Yanaman Malan was called up, but we didn't see them. Was that disappointing? You know, um, you look at the England setup, for example, and, and I've chatted to a number of people who were responsible for putting that whole setup together over the last four to five years, and they've got an interesting talent identification process. So they will track and um, and identify talent from a young age, so from the age of probably 14, 15, they identify the talent. And the key question for me, is, and I think it's, it's a, there's a big difference for me between the way England do it and the way South Africa do it, and probably in other countries as well, ways, uh, you know, in England, what they've done, they've got a pool of scouts, and the scouts are, um, are ex-international or ex-first-class players who are on a scouting panel, and those scouts will go down to the under-15 weeks and school cricket, and they will identify, be tasked to identify young future pro-tail players or future international players. And that's what happened, for example, if you look at Sam Curran and 
some of the young, some of the England current international players, they were identified at the young at the ages of 14, 15, 16. Um, uh, Sam Curran is a good example, and Ollie Pope is another one. So identified at a young age, but they were not identified as in South Africa, where you have, you know, with the greatest of respect to the coaches in those age categories. Um, they were identified by international scouts, so scouts taken, handpicked. Um, for example, ex-first class of ex-test opening batter would go down to an under-15 week and he'd be tasked to look at the under-15 week and look for future opening batters, look at their techniques, look at their emotions, look at how they handle pressure in different situations. Can they build innings? Can they play the short ball? Can they play sprint? So look at all those different elements and then go like, okay, we put together a group of who we think are future talented international players. And and then they nurture them and work on them. So they come into the pipeline and then they, you know, then your whole um, high performance process uh, kicks in. Um, and in South Africa, it's done very differently where the coaches, coaches at those categories. So your, for example, your under 15 coach would be tasked and they have a selection panel there who would identify those players. It's very different. Um, so I think South Africa have probably a bit of tweaking to do the pipeline and the talent ID and the scouting process if we want to replicate what England are doing because I think at the moment if you look at the under-19 and the way that under-19 team uh, performed uh, now you can't simply just look at it and blame the coach or blame the players or blame I think the entire system is responsible for what happened there uh, and if the under-19s uh, played as poorly as they did then that is a reflection you would guess of what our future looks like so something drastic has to happen with our talent ID, our scouting system, and then, of course, our high-performance system. And I think something needs to be done pretty soon. So I hope, we, I hope that does happen quite soon. Um, but, yeah, I think we do have young players. We've got a lot of talent. We've always produced talent in South Africa. It's about how the talent is identified and nurtured because a lot of players also give up at some stage or the other and decide not to play cricket. Some, you know, just, just go into other careers, some decide to take up other sports and a few decide to go overseas or whatever the mm. case is, you know. Um, I mean, what, what for me at the moment is, is gives me a good reflection of what in, in South Africa is that you talk to many young cricketers out there and they a lot of them are looking for opportunities overseas. And it's not only about the money. I think sometimes it is about the money, but I think a lot of times people are disillusioned with the system and the fact okay. that they go, right? they're looking at these under-19s like is that really our best team or is it not you know? yeah. I've got one more question Hussein sorry to come yeah, in sure. for the sake of time our next sure. guest is already holding on but we forgot to answer a Libra about uh, a Tipo Morris uh, what's the story with him yeah look I think Boris I, I would guess he's pretty much part of the setup I can't see why not um, I think what they've done uh, with Morris remember some of the players like you look at ABWS for example apparently now he's available according to Boucher so he would come in but um, I think what they're looking at at the moment is allowing players to play in the different tournaments around the world be it the Big Bash be it um, the Pakistan Super League is going to be starting soon and give them the freedom and allow them to play in the different tournaments and provided they can make themselves available South Africa when the team needs them. So I, I sense there's uh, some discussions going on behind the scenes, and Morris has also been injury prone at times. Mm. I, I think he is part of this part of the setup, and he would be part of the plans for the World Cup uh, T20 World Cup later in the year. Whether he actually makes a squad or not, I don't know, but I, I think he would be part of the plans. I'd be surprised if he wasn't.
Okay, great stuff. Thanks for speaking to us again, Hussein. We love your, your insight, your analysis on SABC. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks, Tavis. Thank, Thank you, you sir. very much. That's Hussein Monak there, cricket analyst, commentator, former selector, former pr- player also. Um, he was an opening batsman, wasn't he? Yes, if I remember correctly, Hussein was a batsman, opening batsman.